0: We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. All right, let's pray. Oh, Holy Trinity, we are your people and we are here to adore you. We are not here to pretend perfection. We're self-sufficiency. We are not a people who have it all together. Lord, there are many here this morning who are tired and need rest. There are many here this morning who are frightened and need courage. There are many here this morning who are ashamed and need to be assured. There are many here this morning who are distracted and need to have their focus redirected upon you. There are many here this morning who are sorrowful and need comfort. And there are many here this morning who are prideful and need to be undone and humbled. Would you welcome us into your transformative love? Speak to us through your holy word, Lord Jesus, for we need to hear from our King this morning. Draw us to yourself by the love of the Spirit, to the glory of the Father. Convince us, O triune God, of your sufficiency. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus, pleading his blood and righteousness alone. Amen. Well, when we were still in the preparation stages of this sermon series, I told Pastor Josh that I was excited for it, uh, at, at, at least in part for this reason, that it was going to surprise everyone. And I think that that's true. This is a surprising book. Some of you may have been looking forward to this study through the book of Ecclesiastes because your personality is what an older generation might have called melancholy. You like this book because you think that it was written by a depressed author who saw the world in a jaded way. And since you're inclined to to view the world in a similar way, you think that this inspired word of God validates your pessimism. You're excited about this book for that reason. There are others of you who are dreading this book because you also think of this book in that way, and you're the exact opposite. You like to pretend like there is nothing heavy in this world. You like to ignore the, the vapor and fleetingness of this world, and you prefer to live in happy ignorance. You'd rather be in denial of this world's ugliness. And there are still others of you who may be dreading this series because, simply because you have been so personally overwhelmed by the troubles of this world, and you think that one more moment of considering its heaviness will crush you. But you may be thinking, I just can't handle a series like this. I cannot handle any more heaviness. Well, I'm happy to share with you that none of those expectations will be met in this series if we do it right. The cynic will not have his cynicism pampered to by this book. I'm sorry. Ecclesiastes, if we read it as a whole on its own terms, will not allow us to be cynical. It doesn't glorify depression. It doesn't vindicate pessimism. It rebukes pessimism. But this book does not avoid cynicism along the lines of of mere optimism either. Ecclesiastes doesn't allow for us to have a blissful ignorance of this world's heaviness. It confronts us with this world's heaviness. So while this does not affirm the cynic in his cynicism, it also confronts the optimist in his denial. The great news for all of us, for all of these readers, and especially the one who is overwhelmed by this world's sorrow, is that the book of Ecclesiastes equips us to experience a deep and abiding, grounded, rock-solid joy that is sustainable, not in spite of this world's difficulties, but precisely through them and in them. It helps us to experience a joy that isn't fragile. It's not so fragile that we can't handle the calamity uh, and, and has to deny what is real. It rather provides a joy that is strong enough to endure calamity and even, this is amazing, even be grateful for it. So think of this book as a thought experiment. You're going to see the preacher embody the position of a nihilist at various points, the person who says that nothing matters, nothing has any meaning. He will give voice to the skeptic who refuses to fear God and experience, as he experiences all that which is under the sun. That's what you're going to see. And he will show, as he does that, as he gives voice uh, to that view, he will show that that way of viewing the world leads to utter despair, right? This is what logicians call in the Latin reductio ad absurdum. It's reducing to the absurd. So he puts himself and this vantage point, and, and then he shows how this view leads to absolute, total despair. That's, that's what this view looks like. Hevel, remember that's the word that, we, that our English translations uh, translate as vanity, um, but really it's just this idea of vapor or fleetingness. So that word hevel, without God, leads to despair. But occasionally, we're going to see the preacher pull back the curtain and reveal how he actually sees the world now, in light of his fear of God. And when he does that, he, reveal, he reveals how all of these experiences, all of this hevel, is a divine gift. So hevel without God leads to utter despair, and hevel with God, same experiences, leads to gratitude. So today, we're going to see the preacher do both. He's going to put on his nihilist hat, and then he's going to take it off and wear his true wisdom hat. And he's going to do this by tracing out for us Solomon's life, Solomon's descent into worldliness. He shows how Solomon has tried to anchor his life in everything that is found under the sun and how all of it is found wanting. So let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Read this with me. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Now we should note that the preacher here attributes the vanity, the vapor of this world to God. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Now remember, the preacher is talking right now in the vein of his past self, the the version of himself where he was forgetting about God. He's giving voice to the way of thinking of the person who does not honor God. And for that person, if there is a God, he has done a cruel thing by putting us in such an awful world. I saw someone on social media recently quote the public intellectual actor, atheist, Stephen Fry. Stephen Fry gave uh, an answer to this question. Okay, we know, Stephen Fry, that you, you don't believe in God, but what if you were wrong? What if you found out that there was a God and you could say something to him? What would you say to God if he was real and you had a chance to talk to him? This is what Stephen Fry said. How dare you? That's what he would say to God. How dare you? How dare you create a world to which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? That's Stephen Fry's answer. Now, there's, this comment is full of a lot of problems. Not the least is the problem that to reject God is to reject the source and standard of morality. In which case, Fry no longer has a standard by which to judge anything as evil or unjust, let alone God. So It's like, as C.S. Lewis says, it's like sawing off the branch that you're sitting on. Nevertheless, Fry's comments here, they help us because they, they help to encapsulate the perspective that the preacher articulates here in verse 14. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He blames the vapor, the vanity of this world on God. Now, the preacher will come out of this perspective at some point in in today's sermon when, when he will speak with true wisdom. But when he does, it's important to remember that the attribution of God's sovereignty remains. In other words, he doesn't shed his cynicism by saying none of this vanity is from God. None of this vapor is from God. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't shed his cynicism by saying that. Even when he does uh, speak with true wisdom, he still attributes it all from God. It's from God even still, except now it's all good. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Right now, Solomon is testing earthly wisdom as a source of meaning. That's what he's doing. He's seeing if earthly wisdom is a justification for his hard existence on this planet. And so he accumulates knowledge and information And what does he learn? What is to show for it? (laughs) He learns with even more accuracy his own powerlessness. What is crooked cannot be made straight, what is lacking cannot be counted. He's powerless. Thus, when he applies his heart to no wisdom and to no folly, he concludes that all is striving after wind. It's like trying to take hold of air. You can't do it. For in much wisdom, he says, is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Wow, is that not unbelievably clear? We know this. This generation, we are absolutely inundated with knowledge. We are bombarded with news feeds and articles and videos and information upon information upon information. Has the accumulation of nonstop knowledge done anything to increase our joy? Does it make us fuller? Does it make us happier to just have constant information poured into us? No, sociological trends seem to confirm what the preacher's words are here, that the accumulation of knowledge doesn't come automatically with the increase of joy, but rather with the increase of sorrow. Here's the point. If all that exists is that which is under the sun, then increasing knowledge is simply increasing more reasons for despair. If all that exists is that which is under the sun, then to increase knowledge is simply to increase more reasons for despair. So Solomon goes down that rabbit hole, knowledge. And he finds nothing but sorrow. So what about door number two? What about self-indulgent licentiousness? What about the uninhibited pursuit of pleasure? Maybe there's meaning there. Chapter two, verse one, read this with me. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Verse 10, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was the reward for all my toil. Then, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Now, if you can't identify on some personal level with what Solomon is trying to do here, I think you might be in denial. Think about this. He was given the power and the means to pursue every kind of pleasure and self-indulgence that existed on the planet. And there was no living human being to whom he would be held accountable. No safety net. No human being that he would have to answer to. And the power and the means to do anything and everything he wanted. And if this wasn't a strong enough temptation for plunging headlong into hedonism, he also had an intellectual justification for plunging. He had an intellectual justification for it. Here is Solomon, the philosopher, on the search for truth and meaning. He went down the route of accumulation of knowledge and found nothing but sorrow at the end of that trail. And so now he, 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 he hypothesizes perhaps pleasure. Is the way to go. Perhaps pleasure is the source of truth and meaning and joy. Maybe the pursuit of pleasure is the path to the good life. And so he deliberately plunges himself into anything and everything to delight the sensations. No desire is too selfish. No desire is too taboo. Nothing is off the table. In fact, he considers it his duty as the teacher, the sage, the preacher, the one with the answers, to discover for himself if solidity and foundation and security is to be found behind this door of pleasure. And so he is meticulous and exhaustive. He is scientific. Every single kind of pleasure there is, he's going to pursue it. Is there pleasure to be found in power? Then he must enjoy and exercise unbridled power. Is there pleasure to be found in music and entertainment? Then he spares no expense to accumulate musicians for uh, endless entertainment. Is there power to be found in the use of substances? Then he must not turn down wine or strong drink. Is there pleasure to be found in sensuality? Then he accumulates concubines and nothing is withheld from him. No beautiful woman is outside of his reach. He's the king, he can do what he wants. Is there pleasure to be found in parties and in uh, and, and the material possessions and large homes with breathtaking amenities and wealth? Then he must have them all. He must feel them with his fingertips. He must feel and hear the full belly laughter of parties and revelry. This stage of the preacher's life is one of full-blown intoxication with pleasure. He lets out all the stops. And during this time, he says that his wisdom remains, which means he's able to accurately analyze the experience after the fact. And what is his conclusion? What results does this experiment in pleasure yield? A vacuous black hole. Emptiness. There's nothing there but we didn't even need to to read Solomon's conclusion in order for us to know that, did we? We are living in the most affluent society, in the most affluent age in the history of the world. What is there to show for it? How many marriages fall apart with millions of dollars in the bank account? How many celebrities find themselves empty and depressed after a long and public submergence into debauchery? How many people are enslaved in the addiction of habitual sin which began with the basic pursuit of pleasure? Just a little bit more. I like how it feels just a little bit more. Indeed, how many of us in this very congregation fit that description? We're all little Solomons. It's not the problem out there in the world. It's all of us. We're all little Solomons. We as a people compared to the rest of the world and the rest of world history are filthy rich, indulgent, entertainment, intoxicated, self-concerned little Solomons. And in some ways, even worse, right? He had to actually go out and physically uh, accumulate concubines for his sensual pleasure, We literally have them in our pockets. It's very different. We hold nothing back from our pursuit of pleasure. Indeed, we as a people, as a society, consider self-denial and the instruction of self-denial a great injustice. Don't tell people to deny themselves. The highest virtue for the pleasure-seeking 21st century American is the prioritization of the self. And yet... None of these things satisfy. They're all wind. They are here one moment and gone the next. We know from our own experience what the preacher came to know from his. Satisfaction is not found here in the uninhibited pursuit of pleasure. There's a flash of gratification and then nothingness, emptiness. Now, before we move on, I'm cheating here a little bit by jumping to the conclusion, but let me just say, if that's you this morning, if you're feeling empty and disillusioned with the pleasure of this world, which is made good on absolutely none of its promises, if you're feeling that prodigal son moment where you're realizing that all of your hedonism has done nothing for you but leave you rolling around in the mud with pigs with your with your sin and your you're waking up to the reality of that situation. I have great news for you. Satisfaction is available to you, free of charge. And here's what you need to hear from me this morning, if that's you, if that, fits your, if that description fits you. You need to hear that God will not despise you for your rebellious self-indulgence when you come back. He will not turn you away. He will not look with disgust at all the filth that you've accumulated with when you were romping around in utter licentiousness, all those occasions for shame that you feel. He's not going to look at you with disgust for any of that. He will not exploit your honesty by compounding your shame with further accusations. He will not hold it over your head. If you come to Christ the God-man who is meek and lowly of heart, the one who wishes to take your burdens upon himself so he can give you his light ones, then your return to God need not be with your tails tucked between your legs. So come on back. Okay, so another swing and a miss for Solomon. The accumulation of wisdom didn't offer Solomon any grounding the uninhibited pursuit of pleasure left him empty and wanting. So what lies behind door number three? Prudent living. Great planning. You know, he, it's security, um, uh, documents and uh, spreadsheets, planning, prudent living. Perhaps... Perhaps if you organize your life in a wise way, considering all your decisions and making your plans in a responsible way, not rash or impulsive, maybe some solidity and transcendent meaning can come that way. Look at verse 12. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is nothing, that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days To come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after wind. So all things being equal, it's better to be wise than foolish. It's better to be informed than to be ignorant, in the same way that we should prefer to have sight than to be blind. So It's relatively better, that's true, but is it so much better that it in any way pushes back the enigma of this world's fleetingness? Does it do anything to resolve the conundrum of this world's vexation? No. You can live wisely, you can plan accordingly, and it's better to live wisely than to live foolishly, but it doesn't guarantee anything. You still experience the same things the fool experiences. You live in struggle. Bad things happen to you no matter how much account you take for them. You cannot secure your own safety or your own legacy or remembrance, and then you die, and then you're forgotten. Same thing happens to the fool. Well, that didn't work. So Solomon gave himself to the accumulation of knowledge and found himself simply sorrowful and depressed because of it. He gave himself to the uninhibited pursuit of pleasure and he was left empty. He gave himself to prudent living, but for all his careful planning, he did not ultimately provide for himself any sort of lasting security. So what's left? Work. Perhaps he can find meaning in in his vocation. Maybe his work driven by ambition and desire for success, can fill what is vacuous in his soul. Verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toil and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair is vanity. Boy, the preacher can identify with all of us, can he? Are you obsessed with academic pursuits and the accumulation of knowledge? Person who wants to rattle off facts in every, in every conversation you're in? Well, the preacher's been down that road and he's here to tell you that it won't satisfy. Are you obsessed with pleasure and the addiction of the intoxication of sensual and material delights? He's been down that road as well, and he assures us that there's nothing there. Are you a planner obsessed with organizing your life, fearful of the unexpected? The preacher is here to tell you that he's probably a better planner than you, and even he was blindsided by life. Are you a workaholic, obsessed with making a name for yourself and building a monument of your own accomplishments, losing sleep over your ambitious need to succeed, This also is vanity, says the preacher. You're losing sleep to erect a monument that certainly will not last forever and may not even make it to the next generation. How many incredibly successful businesses have gone under at the drop of a hat? How many massive projects have been uh, been built up and just crashed down overnight? How many institutions started with such promise only to become... What would be an embarrassment of their founders? You're losing your sleep for nothing, he's saying. Don't sacrifice yourself or your family on the altar of your works, says the preacher. Nothing you build will last forever. Nothing you write will be remembered forever, Pastor Sam. You're probably not even going to get a second edition of most of your books. Now, it's at this point that the preacher reveals his above-the-sun perspective. A transition is marked here by the phrase, there is nothing better in verse 24. There is nothing better. And I want you to note, I want you to note well, how so many of the things that the preacher now articulates as a gift are the very same things that he was despairing over in previous verses. Verse 24, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity. And striving after waned. So, why is the preacher not contradicting himself when he turns from despairing over eating and drinking and working to praising these activities as coming from the hand of God? At one point, he blames God for giving these things, at the next point, he thanks God for giving the same things. What has happened? Well, what has happened between verses 23 and 24 is that we shift from the old preacher of worldly wisdom to the true preacher of biblical wisdom. And this is important because when you, when you compare those earlier portions of scriptures that we just read, when you compare them uh, to, to the book of Proverbs, it's almost the polar opposite, right? You have a person who is so concerned with everything under the sun, and God is merely an afterthought. But wisdom in the book of Proverbs is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's how you start seeking wisdom. And so these last few verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 2 give voice to a Proverbs-like philosopher, a Proverbs-like Solomon. And he thus demonstrates for us the principle of what C.S. Lewis called first and second things. This is is the principle that C.S. Lewis calls first and second things. When you love secondary things as if they were the main things, you lose both. When you, when you love secondary things as if they were the most important things, you lose both of them. But when you love second things in appropriate relation to first things, you lo- your loves are ordered rightly and you enjoy them both. So the example that he gives, one of the examples he gives, is the woman who treats the dog like a child and is trying to essentially turn her dog into a child. He, he says, no loving for a dog will ever turn the dog into a child. And so not only does she not have the joy of truly loving a child, she doesn't even have the joy of truly loving a dog because she's tried to turn the dog into something that it's not. That's not the kind of joy that you're supposed to get out of a dog. So you lose the joy, not only of not loving a child as you're loving that dog, but also you're not even loving the dog as a dog, because you're treating it something that it's not supposed to be. That's what the preacher has discovered here. When the preacher was trying to pursue knowledge and pleasure and wealth and work as his purpose, when he was trying to treat them like that, all was grasping for wind. Not only was he left purposeless, he was left without the ability to enjoy those earthly goods. He can't enjoy those things without God. But when he identified God in his rightful place, all of those things were put into their proper place, right? They they couldn't be a means of the good life, but they could be gifts. They could not bear the weight of giving him meaning, but viewed as gift, they were a delight. And this is why verse 25 says, for to the one who pleases God, or for the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting. What are the things that he's giving to the one who, uh, who pleases God and the, and the sinner in this verse? What are the things that God is actually giving? They're the same. God gives them the same things on paper, God gives them both the same thing. But where God's people receive all of this vapor, all of these fleeting things as gifts, the one who does not know and fear God views it all as a mysterious, enigmatic, exasperating, frustrating burden. One pastor once said that it's as if God gives humanity cans of peaches. Everybody gets them. He gives humanity cans of peaches, but for those who know and serve him, he gives can openers, the ability to enjoy what God has given. Now, before I conclude, let me just also say a word about gratitude and ingratitude for a moment. Nothing will suck your joy like ingratitude. It has no parallels in terms of potency. In terms of power to be able to suck your joy, ingratitude is more effective at robbing your joy than cancer. It's more effective at robbing your joy than the death of a loved one, or calamity, or chronic pain, or betrayal. In fact, ingratitude is so powerful at stealing your joy that you can have an absolute absence of all of those terrible circumstances and still be miserable. You can be cancer free. Enjoy the, the living presence of all of your immediate family. You can have no calamity in your life, no chronic pain, no betrayal, and still be miserable. That's how powerful ingratitude is It's sucking your joy. On the other hand, gratitude is so powerful for preserving your joy that it can make your joy endure through all of those circumstances. Gratitude is powerful enough to preserve your joy through cancer and death and calamity and chronic pain and betrayal. And I'm not talking about frivolous, chipper happiness, mind you. I'm talking about joy, the kind of joy that according to Paul, it's possible to be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. That kind of joy comes from a gratitude that insists on calling everything, everything, Good and bad, divine gift. If it's under the sun, it's a gift. Even suffering. Where does that kind of gratitude come from? Listen, this is so important. It is only possible to view everything as a divine gift if you believe that God is absolutely sovereign and absolutely for you. You cannot view everything that happens in this life as a divine gift from God to you unless you believe that God is absolutely, totally, exhaustively, completely sovereign over everything and that he is totally for you. And he intends all of these things for you. And friends, we can know that this sovereign God of the universe is for us if we have been united to him by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The embodiment of wisdom so believer be grateful for christ be grateful foster gratitude i'm not saying don't be sorrowful for any any sort of sin that is committed against you or any sort of suffering you can endure but i'm saying be grateful the promises of god in christ are that all of those things are for your good so we should be the most grateful people on the planet we should be the least discontented, complaining people on the planet. And that kind of gratitude can't happen simply from saying, self, be grateful. That kind of gratitude comes from becoming convinced of God's sovereignty and his being for you. So I'm just telling you, he is. He is sovereign, and he is totally for you. If you're in Christ, you have not been abandoned by God. He's for you. He means it all for your good. Nothing is wasted. And so my closing charge to you, if you're not a believer, is to come to Christ by faith today. Deny yourself. Abandon your pursuit of knowledge and wealth and power and pleasure or work or whatever else you're tempted to worship above all else. Stop looking at all of these things under the sun as the source of meaning for your life. Look above the sun. Friends, don't you see that all that exists under the sun is fleeting and temporary and unpredictable and transient and changeable and unstable? Don't bank your life or your soul on any of it. It can't bear the weight. It's too vaporous. It's not supposed to bear that weight. And if there is no God above the sun, it's all meaningless. But there is a God above the sun. And coming to Him as your ultimate good turns all of those transient, fleeting experiences of this life into gift. Since there is a sovereign God over the universe, none of it is meaningless. And if you reconcile with Him, you will be positioned to delight in each and every one of them as meticulously placed for your good. And you don't get to reconcile with God on your own terms. This is actually good news for you. It might not sound like good news, but it is. You don't get to reconcile with this God on your terms. The great news is that he has come to you. He comes to you. He makes reconciliation possible by his own means, and they're better. What are the terms and conditions? Okay, here are the terms and conditions. You, you, might, you might dream up something like, okay, I'll reconcile to God if I do this, and he does this, and then we'll kind of make peace together. Here are his terms and conditions. Bring Nothing. You bring nothing. All you bring is your need. You bring your emptiness, and I'll give you myself. That's it. Those are the only terms and conditions of being reconciled to this God, which powerfully turns all of the vapor and the difficulty of this life into divine gifts. So bring to him your emptiness, and he will fill you with the fullness of divine love. It's fitting for us as we conclude on this note of gratitude, to transition now into a time of communion, like we do every week with the bread and the cup. Many traditions call this meal the Eucharist, which means Thanksgiving. This is a gratitude meal. So if you're not in Christ, we truly, really do want you to share this meal with us someday. Doing so will mean that you, have been, that you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and have every reason to be grateful for his redeeming and atoning work. But if you have not yet been brought into this family, into this body of Christ, then taking this meal prematurely would be dishonest and misrepresentative. So if you're not a Christian, please stay in your seat and consider Jesus. And I pray, I pray that the Lord would warm your heart to him and would compel you to come to him by faith as you watch those of us who are Christians share this meal together. Please talk to any of us if you would like to, someone to pray with you or to talk to you about what it means to be a Christian. And now, brothers and sisters, you who are part of Christ's body, this meal is for you. As I said, this is a Thanksgiving meal, and by it, as we eat and drink By faith in Christ, Christ fellowships with us here and he nourishes our souls. He nourishes our faith with this meal. He is our good shepherd and he has set a table for us in the wilderness. And so I invite you to celebrate your peace with him in this meal and let it be a reorientation for the rest of of the week. Let us begin our week today. Let us begin our week right here with a posture of gratitude and let that carry over into everything else we do. I'm going to pray in just a moment and have the believers come down this aisle to my left. You'll get your hand sanitizer, receive the elements over here on this table, and return to your seat along this aisle to my right. Would you pray with me? Pray this communion prayer by the Puritan pastor Robert Hawker with me. Dear Lord, surely you are the all in all of everything that is sacred and blessed. You are the altar, the sacrificer, and the sacrifice. And it can only be from your blessing on our poor worship when we remember your one all-sufficient sacrifice with a feast that we discover the deeper spiritual meaning. Until I hear your call, Lord, I cannot eat. But if you say, eat, friends, and drink abundantly, beloved, then I feel confidence in your welcome to every gospel feast. Then I can sit down under your shadow with great delight. So come often to your table, dearest Lord, and sit as a king. Come to your banquet, to your church, your people, your house of prayer, your ordinances. Come and bless your people. Amen. I love you, Emmaus. Your good shepherd has set a table for you in the wilderness. So come Eat, drink, and be grateful. The following audio is from Amaze KC. More information about Amaze KC is available online at www.amazekc.com.